Welcome to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. My name is John Schuck, and I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Religion for Life is a co-production of WETS uh, in Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC in Emory, Virginia. And I am in the midst of a series of programs on the future of faith or the future of religion. Uh, guests have included Phyllis Tickle, David Kinneman, Diana Butler-Bass. Uh, coming up, we have uh, uh, Harvey. Cox, Daniel Dennett, and today, Brian McLaren. Brian McLaren is an author, speaker, activist, and public theologian, a former college English teacher and pastor. He's an ecumenical global networker among innovative Christian leaders. His first book, The Church on the Other Side, Doing Ministry in the Post- Modern Matrix has been recognized as a primary portal into the current conversation about postmodern ministry. Uh, his second book, Finding Faith, is a contemporary apologetic written for thoughtful seekers and skeptics. A Generous Orthodoxy is a personal confession and has been called a manifesto of the emerging church conversation. His latest book is Why Did Jesus, Moses, the Buddha, and Muhammad Cross the Road? Christian Identity in a Multi-Faith World. Welcome, Dr. McLaren, to Religion for Life. Thank you. Great to be with you. Uh, tell us about the title of this book. Uh, how does it get us talking about Christianity and other faiths? Well, uh, as, as you know, the, uh, the, the, the title references a kind of an old, tired joke uh, about chickens crossing roads. And uh, one of the reasons we wanted to inject a little bit of humor into the title is that when the subject of religion comes up, people often get so excessively serious that, uh, you know, that, that we can't change the dance. And uh, that's one of the things that I think we really need to do. Um, and by, by presenting the, the picture of our religious founders uh, getting together, we then can imagine how they would treat one another. And uh, I think just about everyone would agree that uh, our founders would treat each other better than their followers often have. And, and if we can get that as a starting point, I think maybe we can get to some better space in the future. You wrote uh, that the stronger our Christian faith, the more goodwill we will feel and show toward those of other faiths. And that, that makes a lot of sense to me, except so often, for some reason, it doesn't seem to work that way in much of Christianity. Uh, uh, strength is often understood as over against the other. Uh, my strong faith per, uh, requires me to be really to convert you or to conquer you or, or something. And you're saying that strength of faith enables us to be with the other. Is that right? Well, yes. Well, th that I think is is the quest of the book, really. Uh, I think we already know how to do two things very well. We first know how to have a strong religious identity that has hostility built into it. So the stronger the identity, the stronger the hostility. I think we've all seen this in Christianity. We've seen it in other religions as well. Uh, we often use the word fundamentalist or extremist uh, to describe this, but I grew up in a uh, conservative evangelical background, and I'd have to admit that uh, that that my religious training really did not prepare me for a neighborly and kind and welcoming and respectful encounter with the other. Um, a lot of people know that they don't want to have that strong and hostile identity. So what they do is kind of swing to the opposite extreme and, and they try to weaken the hostility by weakening their identity. And then you end up with a kind of weak or nominal faith that is tolerant toward other faiths. But what, I think we're at a point in human history now where we, each of our faiths, but I, for me as a Christian, this is my primary concern, 
that as a Christian, we have to discover a, a way that, so to have a strong Christian commitment that has strong benevolence toward other faiths built into it. And and I think that's something that perhaps we could see in uh, in other traditions, but it, it, and we can also see it in our past. But it's something that is uh, far too rare in the present. And you write there, there's a great deal at stake if we don't get this correct. Uh, you you say we're we are increasingly faced with a choice, I believe, not between kindness and hostility but between kindness and non-existence. Uh, the, way, uh, uh, the way we relate, uh, the way we religious people relate has planetary consequences, doesn't it? Yes. Uh, you know, the Christian faith makes up about 33% of the world's population, loosely speaking. Uh, and then Islam makes up about 24, 25% of the world's population. So just with those two religions, and two religions that right now are both experiencing a good bit of hostility toward the other— we have the majority of the world's population. Uh, if, if Christians have in their identity some amount of hostility toward other faiths, everybody in the world is going to suffer. And as, that's especially the case when you realize that the Christian faith owns disproportionate amounts of wealth and weaponry. Uh, so I, I think the, the whole world has a great interest in Christians dealing with our history of hostility and theological and liturgical roots of our hostility uh, so that we can rediscover at the core of our faith a great benevolence toward our neighbors, uh, whatever their religious background. Some will argue, uh, and and they'll tell me, friends of mine, and they'll quote uh, Christopher Hitchens, that religion poisons uh, everything. Um, And I have to say that it isn't hard sometimes to find evidence for that. I, I find popular Christianity to be anti-science, anti-gay, exclusive, dogmatic in the most narrow sense of the word, just sometimes just plain mean. I, I, a college student of mine had coffee oh, a couple of years ago, and, and he worked in a restaurant, and he said to me, you know, uh, the worst shift is Sunday afternoon. That's when the mm. church people come, and they're rude and lousy tippers. And I thought, oh, oh, what, a, what, a, what a legacy that we're leaving. But of course, that isn't all of the story, is it? Well, it's not, but but uh, you're right. It's uh, it's far too common a uh, part of the story. Uh, in this election year, we've seen religion used uh, in, in ways that just stirs up hostility, stirs up suspicion, uh, and um, uh, and a lot of us who, who've spent our lives in the church. And I was a pastor for 24 years, so mm-hmm. I've been deep in church life. We've seen this at such close range. Uh, and it's not only hostility toward people on the outside, but sometimes the most bitter hostility is reserved for people on the inside who don't maintain the normal hostilities towards people on the outside. So there is this deep, deep uh, problem that we've got to face. On the other hand, as you say, there is this other side of our faith, what you might call a minority report so far. You see it, for example, in the story of St. Francis uh, back in the Middle Ages, when one of the popes had uh, organized a crusade against the Muslims in the Holy Land, and he amassed a huge, uh, a huge uh, a supply of Christian soldiers uh, in, in the Nile Delta, Saint Francis made a beeline to the Nile, uh, came into the camp, but didn't don the uh, the weapons of of a crusader. Instead, he then snuck out of the Christian camp and walked unarmed into the camp of the Sultan of Egypt, and there approached the Sultan 
with instead of with weapons of war, with words of peace. And and we have that tradition that I think now is the time uh, for us to to rediscover. Now, I always think of it whenever I see a photograph or, or on television, I see Archbishop Desmond Tutu, a Christian, and the Dalai Lama, the leader of Tibetan Buddhism. And they they always, to me, just look like two young boys who want to sneak out of the meeting and uh, play kickball on the playground or something. You know, they just seem to enjoy each other. And their difference doesn't create division, but rather creates interest. And they also have just a lightness of heart, don't they? Kind of yes. with, with the title of your uh, book itself. Yes. And, and, and uh, uh, you know, this is one of the fascinating realities of religion. Religion for some people, evokes something grim and grave and condemning and guilty and heavy and shame-oriented. And for other people, evokes light and peace and joy and lightheartedness and not taking ourselves too seriously and living in an atmosphere of grace. And, and here's the, the, great, the great benefit, I think, of discovering a faith that is less hostile toward the other. It will also be a faith that's less damaging to our own psyche and soul's so uh, I think it's a, it's a worthwhile pursuit all the way around. Well, you started out, if you don't mind telling a little bit of your own story, you started out uh, on the evangelical or conservative side of the, of the religious spectrum. H- how has your own faith emerged? Can you, can you tell us about sure. your journey toward a generous orthodoxy? Sure. Well, I, I grew up in a very uh, conservative, uh, some people would call it a fundamentalist Christian uh, uh, setting. I remember being told when I was in junior high school you have to make a choice. You can either believe in God or evolution. You can't ever believe mm. in both. Um, and, and I remember I was very interested in science. I, I, I think when I was in, in junior high school, I was at the library. I'd read all of the science books for uh, kids my age, and I was checking out the college uh, textbooks because I just had such a hunger to learn about science. I thought evolution was one of the grandest and most uh, fascinating things I'd ever encountered. And I remember thinking, what a shame that God and religion can't handle this. So I, I assumed I'd be on my way out, you know, by the time I, I came of age. Um, and, uh, but on the other hand, I'd have to say that also in my religious upbringing, there were, there were great values too. I was taught uh, to really care about right versus wrong. I, I was taught to have deep values and deep commitments and a willingness to uh, to suffer for doing what was right, if, if need be. And, and so, uh, so much of what I, I, I gained from my, my, benefit, my, my background has proven to be great benefit to me uh, in my life. But uh, later on, I, I became a pastor, and my own misgivings and my own questions that I'd struggled with were in many ways intensified when people would come to my church, and then they'd seek me out as a pastor, and they'd ask me their questions. And I, I had to come to terms with the fact that I had never fully bought into a lot of the simplistic answers that I'd been given, and I didn't want to pass those off to other people. So uh, in my 30s and 40s, I had, uh, I had to really question and, and rethink my entire faith. And, and, and is it that time when you started to uh, uh, write these books on faith? Yes, um, from 1990 to 1996, th- those were some of the, the toughest years of my life. One of my kids uh, came down with cancer, and so we went through three and a mm. half years of, of daily chemotherapy. Thank God he, he came through just fine. But uh, I was emotionally worn and tired from that as well. 
uh, I was going through a kind of a faith crisis. And I remember in about 1995, I thought, okay, I, I'm, not, I'm not only going to be out of the pastorate within a year, but I'm probably not even going to call myself a Christian anymore. So, so my faith disintegration was pretty significant. But as often is the case, when you hang in there just a little bit longer, you, you find some, uh, some fresh reasons for hope. And, and um, I think there was a, a letting go process that had taken many years and then uh, uh, there was a kind of letting come process and, and some new insights and new approaches to faith uh, began to present themselves to me in the coming years. And so I, I wrote my first book, uh, which was called Church on the Other Side, in, in 1998. And th- I remember when I wrote that book, I, I was doing two things. I first was saying, the old way isn't working for me. And uh, are, is there anybody else out there who mm. would feel the same way? And I was also saying, but there are some glimmers of hope out there for a new way of being a Christian. And uh, uh, and that was out of that came this uh, kind of reformulation of my own faith. Uh, I thought I would, to be honest, I, I thought I'd lose all my friends when that book came out. Uh, but the but the, the surprise, the, the wonderful surprise was people started coming out of the woodwork saying, oh, gosh, I thought I was the only person with these questions. And, and they were so relieved, uh, to find that somebody else was, was having the same doubts and questions and reformulations. And, and that's really been the exciting journey really of the last dozen years or so. Um, watching more and more people, uh, realize that there's a better way to, uh, to hold our faith. If you're just joining us, this is Religion for Life. I'm John Shuck, and my guest is Brian McLaren. He's the author of Why Did Jesus, Moses, the Buddha, and Muhammad Cross the Road? Christian Identity in a Multi-Faith World. In one of your chapters, I'm just paraphrasing, um, but I I really uh, resonated with this, the idea that if we lost Christianity, if we just folded up, who'd keep the powers, the domination system in check? Uh, There's a strong prophetic element of following Jesus that has elevated the poor, worked for liberation, and marched against uh, militarism. And and that would be lost, wouldn't it? And, and, and not only Christianity, but perhaps a strong and benevolent Islam as well. Yes. In fact, uh, I, I was at a, a meeting some years ago where a Muslim scholar, uh, this was shortly after September 11, 2001, there was a group of Christian scholars and Muslim scholars together. And um, a Muslim scholar said to this mixed gathering, uh, he said, um, one of our problems in Islam is almost all of our great saints were also warriors. We, we, uh, now he, mm. he wasn't including Suf- Sufism, which would be an exception to this, but I believe he was a Sunni Muslim. He was saying, we don't have a St. Francis in our tradition. Um, like you Christians do, you have some models of peace-loving uh, 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 Christians, and we need this. And then he said, frankly, I see no hope for a deeply peaceful Islam in the future if, uh, apart from the life and teachings of our Muslim prophet, Issa. Well, of course, Issa is the name for Jesus in, in Arabic. And what he was saying is that if Muslims could rediscover the radical teaching of Jesus about peace, that could be a way for them within their own tradition uh, to chart a new course. And of course, the great irony for me as a Christian is I would say exactly the same of Christianity. We, we've created a, an amazing apparatus uh, of the Christian religion 
and and done a wonderful, masterful, uh, and and uh, disheartening job of bracketing Jesus' life and teachings out. And so uh, I'm one of many who are are in many ways uh, trying to reach Christians for Christ in the sense of inviting Christians to rediscover Jesus with his radical message of reconciliation and peace. You know, there are many approaches to uh, emerging Christianity, and yours, as I understand it, is uh, is to keep the doctrines, but to tell them that in ways, or tell them ways that interpret them in ways that are not hostile or violent or exclusive. For example, we, we're just talking about Jesus. Uh, now, a default view uh, that I come across often, I suppose many do, is that Jesus is the only Son of God. All others are false. He's the way, the truth, and the life. If you don't believe in Jesus, it's kind of down the chute to the eternal fire for you. And that yes. view is very common. So how then... Um, would your view uh, now change? What's your view of Jesus? Well, I, if I can just uh, first make a, a quick comment about uh, the, the scripture that you quoted there uh, from the Gospel of John. It's, it's one of the most widely quoted verses in the whole New Testament. It's John fourteen six, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And mm -hmm. I, I just finished a book tour. I think I was in 18 cities, and in 14 of the cities in the discussion time, someone brought up that verse. So it is extremely widely quoted. And one of the things I w try to tell people in every one of those uh, cities is that that verse has absolutely nothing to do with uh, with the relationship between Christian faith and other faiths. It's not the context. Uh, it, that, that's taking that verse out of context. Um, I, I had a funny experience a couple of years ago. I was with a Muslim friend, and I, I said to him, uh, you Muslims have a big advantage when, when it comes to interfaith dialogue because uh, whenever I talk to a Muslim about the relationship between Islam and other faiths, they always quote the surah in the Quran that says God made us different so that we would seek to know one another. Hmm. Uh, and uh, I said, but whenever I ask a Christian, they always quote John 14, 6. And my Muslim friend laughed and he said, oh, Brian, he said, believe me, there are other passages in the Quran that could be quoted that would be chilling and frightening. I said, the reason that Muslims quote that one surah is it's the one that we've been trained to quote. And then he said, you have to ask the question as a Christian, why have people been so well trained to quote that one, that one verse, John 14, 6, and what should they be trained to quote instead? And, and so to me, the, the choice of which verse to quote in some ways reveals a, a prior bias. Uh, and that bias is a bias toward religious supremacy and hostility toward the other. And that we've had a long history of that, haven't we, with the empire building and uh, empire as Christianity? Well, John, that, that's one of the things that uh, I've actually been criticized for uh, for bringing up. Uh, but I, I just think it I have to keep bringing it up until we take it seriously. And that is the fact that uh, by the uh, end of the fourth century of the Christian era, the Christian faith had made a deal with the Roman Empire. And I do think that Christians managed to inject some of their values into the Roman Empire. But I'm also certain that many of the violent and imperial attitudes of, of the Roman Empire made their way into Christianity, especially Western Christianity. And, and that was manifested in the following centuries in European history. And then it was manifested in the colonial era. And um, it's still being manifested today. 
And uh, so what we call Christianity, whether it is Catholic or Protestant, in many ways, I believe, is we, we might call it Roman Catholic or Roman Protestant, because both versions still have this Roman imperial uh, tone to them and, and flavor to them. And when I think the actual message of Jesus, as, as really the whole message of the Hebrew and Christian scriptures is a message that empire is not the way to bring peace in the world, that there's a better way. And that's what is still awaiting uh, exploration. My guest is Brian McLaren. He's the author of Why Did Jesus, Moses, the Buddha, and Muhammad Cross the Road? My guest on Religion for Life. I want to switch directions in for uh, just a, a little bit, uh, Brian. Uh, this September, you officiated at your son's wedding, a uh, same-gender wedding. Congratulations, by the way, to your son and, and his life partner. You have two sons now. Um, yes, that's right. <laughs> and I also want to, I'm, I participate in PFLAG, Parents, Friends, and Families of Lesbians and Gays, and I just want to thank you uh, for modeling um, that support uh, for your son. Uh, sometimes it's, that's missing for many people, and they think their Christianity keeps them from doing that. And, and I also appreciate that uh, the wedding itself uh, was a Christian one. And, um, and I know it involved risk, and I know not everyone's thanking you. Um, and one of the blogs wrote your story under this headline, gay-affirming false teacher Brian McLaren marries his gay son. I, I just have a couple of questions. How do you handle the hurtful stuff, and, and what has this been like for you with your family's uh, personal life being so public? Yes, well, uh, it's, it, it's one of the things uh, when, my, when my son came out that was the hardest and, and most emotionally painful. It, it wasn't that my son was gay. It was that my public life will make my son being gay potentially more difficult for him. And mm -hmm. uh, so it, it is It is a complicating factor. I, a friend of mine who was the former leader of a an evangelical denomination told me the most painful part of his role as the head of that whole denomination was, was knowing that gay children in his denomination were being hurt by his denomination. And, and um, uh, you know, we have these self-fulfilling cycles where if people shame and, and uh, condemn gay people, then they stay closeted uh, and, then, and they just disappear. Uh, and the result of that then is that the, the people who do the shaming never meet healthy and uh, uh, happy and fulfilled uh, uh, gay people. Um, and so I suppose that's what I just try to keep in mind, that uh, it's no surprise that people have harsh and condemning uh, statements. Um, and if, if I can just try to model, uh, and, and my son and others like him, we can just try to model an alternative. It's the only way that things change, people having the courage uh, to differ graciously. And uh, if, if we differ with in, kind of returning insult for insult, returning condemnation for condemnation, then the other side just gets more defensive and then they feel wounded. But if if those of us who are wounded and, and insulted and, and labeled and rejected and so on, if we can just maintain an attitude of love toward the people who uh, mistreat us, first of all, I think we're following the example of Christ. And second of all, I think that's one of the things that most uh, deeply and truly brings about change. And you've been involved on change in a number of levels, including uh, you mentioned right at the beginning of the interview, uh, some of the greatest hostilities are between those uh, those of us in the same faith uh, when we go against the tribe. 
And, yes. and you've kind of done that in a number of ways, going against in, in terms of uh, embracing people of other religions, uh, talking about uh, American empire, uh, obviously uh, human sexuality and whatnot. Uh, has that been rewarding for you? Well, uh, you know, you, you mentioned uh, my son's wedding. I, I mm -hmm. made a decision uh, after the wedding that I just wouldn't go to those websites and read. <laughs> okay, the I won't share any more with you then. <laughs> and right. and, uh, uh, and well, my, my wife did, and so uh, I, I uh, she had, we had a tearful conversation where she, you know, she was really hurt by this. But I've seen so much of it already, and I just decided not to subject myself uh, to that. Um, uh, and, and one of the reasons why is because uh, the joy of participating in my son's life and and the joy of seeing him. By the way, my, my son, who's gay, is also the cancer survivor. So, mm. you know, uh, for him, just that he's alive, I will be eternally grateful after all we've been through. And so uh, and I bring that up just to say that, yes, the the, the benefits so far outweigh uh, the costs. The, the costs are real. I don't want to minimize that. But I think, for example, I, I mentioned this in the book. I, I, I met a Muslim, a woman, Muslim scholar some years ago. And uh, after, after we met, uh, she emailed me and said, I, I had never heard of you. She said, I, I looked up your name. I kind of Googled your name and the word Islam and, Mus and Muhammad and Quran. She said, I found every place on the internet where you've ever said anything about my religion. And she said, you've always spoken respectfully and honorably about my religion. And for that, she said, I want to thank you. And then she said, but doing that Google search also brought up all the things that your fellow Christians have said about you for speaking respectfully of me and my religion. And she said, and I want to thank you for that. And then her, her last words were um, something like this, you are a true Christian. And I, mm. this is, I think, something you can only experience when you uh, stick your neck out for someone else. When you try to follow Jesus' example, when he said, no greater love can someone have than this than to lay down their life uh, for their friends. Absolutely. Final question, Brian McLaren. What is the punchline? Why did Jesus, Moses, the Buddha, and Muhammad cross the road? Well, we came up with a lot of them, but I'll tell you my favorite to get to the other. <laughs> but um, bum to get to the other. That's very good. And to make the other, what, a friend of ours. Is that right? Exactly right. You know, one of Jesus' uh, most uh, well-known parables was the story of the Good Samaritan. And in that story, there are two religious leaders, you could say two members of the us religion, who cross the road to get away from somebody in need. And then along comes a member of the them religion, and that fellow crosses the road to make contact with someone in need. And Jesus tells this road crossing story to remind us that we're all crossing roads. It's just a question of whether we're crossing a road to make loving contact with the other or to escape from it. Brian McLaren, my guest on Religion for Life, author of Why Did Jesus, Moses, the Buddha, and Muhammad Cross the Road? A great book. Please pick that up. And uh, Dr. McLaren, thank you so much for your work and for uh, spending time with me today. Well, thank you so much for having me and keep up the good work on this show. You've been listening to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. My name is John Shuck, and I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org. The website for this radio program, including links to podcasts, is religionforlife.com, religionforlife.org. 
www.religionforlife.com. Come visit us. Religion for Life is a co-production of WETS-FM and WETS-HD1, Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC-FM, Emory, Virginia. Be well.